Hi there, I'm Margaret. Join me for a deep dive into the life of a freelancer. I share my clients' struggles and successes and celebrate those moments that make it oh so worth it. This is Freelance Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited because we not only have one of my financial planners, but a great friend. And I would be remiss not to mention this, but who is very currently having a new baby right now. So I want to welcome Shannon Simmons. So Shannon is a certified financial planner, chartered investment manager, media personality, personal finance expert, and founder of the New School of Finance. She's also a best-selling author of the two books, The Worry-Free Money Book and Living Debt-Free. Hi, how is it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm in early labor. So this is a fun podcast to do. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so excited that we get to be a part of something very pivotal in your life. <laughs> so this is baby number two, just so everyone knows. Yeah, baby number two. And when you're self-employed, there is no mat leave. So you just you just do your thing until the baby comes. So that's why we're here today. Yeah. Awesome. So of course, we're here to talk about all things freelance, all things financially associated with freelance. and So I've seen Shannon, not only seen Shannon speak a few times, but I've been a client of hers and I wouldn't be able to get through my first years of freelance without her guidance. It can be such a overwhelming and a mucky experience to start off with because there's so much, not only conflicting information out there, but a lot of it. um, So I'm Canadian, as you guys know, uh, Shannon's Canadian as well. But a lot of times when you search things online, they're specific to the US and don't speak to Canadian finances itself. So I'm so glad that we get to hang out talk about things that are very specific to freelancers within Canada. Yeah, that's the big thing too, right? Is just making sure that all that tax information is specific to you and not just a blog post, you know? That's great. So let's go back. I know when I was in school, we, I'm sure as many others that are my generation around the same age as us, we don't learn anything about, never mind business finances, but no household finance information in school. Like there was some high level accounting classes and things like that as well. So I want to get an idea from you. Like, where did you first start learning about finances and how to open up that conversation in the household more? Because I know growing up, we never talked about money. Like it was rude to talk about money. Yeah, I had a different experience. And I wonder sometimes if that's really shaped A, why my interest in personal finance and business finances kind of collided. And also why I've been pretty level-headed about finances my whole life. So I grew up in a small family business. And so everyone worked in the family business. And when you have that, it's impossible not to talk about money. So we talked about money at the dinner table, in the morning, like whenever, because what we were actually talking about was the business finances, but those finances were our family finances too. So if it was a bad year, you know, there'd be conversations about, okay, well, the holidays are going to be kind of slim this year. And if it was a good year, you know, we went on a big trip. My sister and I always kind of knew that money comes, money goes. There are good years, there are bad years. When you have it, you can spend some. When you don't, you got to pull it in. And I didn't know that that was rare. So I think that having that kind of openness and honesty with us, it was never like, we're going to move into a box and sell the house. Like it was never like scary kind of talk. But you know, if things were tight, we knew it. And we pulled together as a family and as a team. And I didn't realize that was rare until later on in high school and university, I was so open about finances and people would get so uncomfortable when I would like bring up money. Like, you know, if we're talking about OSAP, I'm like, oh, how much OSAP do you have? Or how much is it? Like, and I would just ask questions without realizing that I was being rude. But I also think that knowing that those conversations were happening and understanding that from a young age, I understood 
how money works, what it was, and I had an appreciation for it in a way that I know a lot of my friends didn't. So I think that it is our responsibility, not only in school, but also in the home to like talk about these things, be a little bit more vulnerable and worry less that kids are going to be shattered by it. I think that's the thing, like most parents that I've talked to when I'm doing financial planning with them, they don't want their kids to know if there's debt or if there's hard times that are happening. They like to keep it a secret because they don't want their kids to worry. And that goes all the way through. Like even some of my retired clients don't want their kids to know how scary things might look for them in retirement because they don't want them to worry. But I think it's actually having the opposite impact. I think the more we know, the more we can help, the more we can support emotionally. And the more we also help the next generation so that maybe if their finances aren't exactly where they want to be, they don't have so much crushing guilt or fear about it because they know that it's relatively normal to have ups and downs. Yeah, I think that's so important. Like you said, to having the conversation, especially between generations, because if someone of a previous generation is very guarded and everything seems okay, the second something doesn't seem okay with the next generation or with the kids of that person, then they start to panic. And this whole, it keeps kind of sort of spiraling downwards. And there is no conversation because there tends to be like a lot of shame around it for sure. Oh, the shame and the fear is so real. And actually interesting with my freelance clients, I also get it on the business side of things. So people don't want to admit when their sales are slow or when things are down because they're worried that that is some sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you say it out loud, somehow it'll come true because people will think, oh, you know, their business is dying or something. That's an interesting thing that happens within the freelance and entrepreneur world. And on the flip side, I also have lots of clients who are doing really well and also don't want to spread that around too much. So they're happy to say that like things are going well, but they don't want to say how well things are because they don't want people to judge them and they don't want to think that they're jinxing anything. Like there's so much emotion tied up with our money, whether it's good or bad. And I feel like in business and freelance, you've got this double whammy because not only is your business and whether or not you feel like you can step into the roles, like, you know, I am owning this, I'm a freelancer, this is what I do. But those freelancer finances also impact your personal finances because if the freelance money has gone off the rails, then there's nothing to pay your rent with or your mortgage with. So they're so intertwined with your self-worth and your confidence. And that's why I think like having financial discussions around freelancing is so important because it really can mess with your confidence in your business if the money stuff isn't on lockdown. Yeah, totally. Oh, it's so funny because I relate to that so much when you're saying that not only through downtimes are people hesitant to talk about it, but through uptimes too. Like I get that. And what an interesting feeling because I was like, oh, I get that a lot too. Like I've had that experience where I don't want to, I'm scared of either making someone else feel bad or someone's going to think you're bragging and all of this kind of stuff that comes along with it. And it's interesting because I hear other people's stories about money and I tell myself, I don't have that problem. But just talking about this, I mean, I definitely have some of these issues and some of the other stories that I do hear about money that can also come from a pace of fear is people who like when I try to have conversations about money, they say, Oh, I don't know. I don't know how much is in my accounts. I don't know because they're scared to open their bank accounts and look. And it can be scary for sure. But just knowing how much you have in there, but also knowing like the exact amount of money you owe, if you do have any debts, I think is so important. It's something people, I'm sure as you probably mentioned in your book, there can be some real blocks around people just not even knowing how much money they're in debt. But speaking from experience, it can be very empowering to really get to know and be familiar with those numbers for sure. Yeah, I think that sometimes we hide in the we don't want to know because the monster that we've created in our head is so much scarier than the reality of it. So one thing that I get to do with people sometimes is, you know, rip that bandit off, make it a little bit real. Yeah. And I'd say more often than not, it's not as bad as they thought. 
because then we make a plan, then we have a strategy, then they see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's like, oh, okay, that is manageable. But when it's all in your head, and you're not telling anybody, and you're not looking at it, it's bump in the night, the fear of not knowing what it actually is, can often trip us up even more than taking a hard look at it and just making a plan. That's actually the greatest antidote to any of that kind of overwhelmingness or anxiety that people feel. And I think that freelancers are acutely aware of the finances. And I think one extra layer of why we don't want to look at it, like, first of all, people don't like to look at the money stuff because of tax. Tax freaks everybody out. And I know that we're going to talk about that. So we'll save some of that juicy stuff in a moment. (laughs) But the more emotional piece that I've also found with running your own business is that if they're super passionate about what they're doing, they don't want to know that it's not going to work or that it's not working. Mm. Because that might mean that your business is, I don't want to say not working, but there's problems, right? And so that is a reality check that often people don't want to know about because it brings up a whole bunch of other questions like, okay, well, how do I change strategies? Do I have to innovate? Do I have to diversify? Do I need to get a job? Like those bigger questions are scarier than just not knowing how much is in your bank account. So that's another emotional layer that I find people when they're ignoring it, it may not only just be because of the tax and the nitty gritty stuff, it may be a bigger fundamental question of, I don't really want to know that my business is or isn't working because I want to just keep doing it the way that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally see that too. And it's easy to get caught up in that, especially if it's like you said, if it's something you love so much, it's like, oh, but I really believe in it. It's like, yeah, but we have to look at the numbers as well. It's just another part of the equation. It's a balance, right? It's not all about the numbers and it's not all about the dream. It's like a Venn diagram. You got to find that sweet spot in the middle where it's financially sustainable and also, you know, emotionally satisfying. Yeah, totally. Now we did talk a little bit about, we've kind of mentioned freelancers in general, and of course it's freelance freedom. So I wanted to ask you, what drew you to working with freelancers and small business owners? That's an amazing question. It was not my intention in the beginning. I mean, I was trained for it and everything, but... I'm a financial planner at heart and by trade and personal finance is where I kind of had started everything with new school and like the investing and the, can I afford to buy the house and can I retire? Like all those personal finance questions. But over the last, oh my gosh, 12 years, what started to happen was more and more people are freelancing. So, you know, 10 years ago, I started noticing that almost half my clients were freelancing or self-employed or running their own business, like doing something on their own. And then if they have a problem with the CRA, like with Revenue Canada, then all of that other stuff that I could dream up about how to better your personal finances, like how to invest, or if you can't afford to buy that house, or what we're going to put away for our retirement nest egg, all of those questions can't be answered because we have to prioritize this other beast over here with the tax man. So freelance finances became part of personal finances for me just out of sheer need to look at the holistic picture. Instead of looking at these like operating in two different silos, like I said earlier, like if your business finances aren't up to date or on lockdown or making sense, we can't move forward in your personal finances. So they became intertwined. I'm trained for it. And then I also, I like taxes, which is something that very few people in the world will probably say. (laughs) And so it kind of started this gradual thing. And now it's half of our business is just tax planning, doing taxes, the bookkeeping piece. Like we have all of that stuff going for us because so many people are now self-employed. Whereas, you know, when I first started doing this over 12 years ago, it was rare and then it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah. And I love that you said that you love taxes because I mean, it shows in everything you do when you run your tax party every year, especially, <laughs> which is awesome. 
So let's dive like a little bit more into taxes because that's one thing and a big, like you said, juicy area where people get super overwhelmed in, especially when they're just starting off as a freelancer. And for someone who is just in those beginning phases and doesn't yet have someone like you in their corner, I'll leave your information, of course, in the show notes as well in case anyone wants to reach out. But in case anyone is just starting off, doesn't have someone like you in their corner yet, what would you say they first need to focus on to start organizing their finances to begin to start to curb that overwhelm? Okay. So when in doubt, track what's coming in and track what's going out because you need to have that information to be able to do anything positive around taxes. So if you're selling a service and someone pays you $1,000, you send them an invoice and they pay you $1,000, open an Excel spreadsheet, even like the most basic thing that you can do just to make sure that you write down who that client was, what they paid you for, what the invoice number was and like what date it was so that you would have this ongoing rolling screen of how much money came into your bank account over the year rather than not knowing because most of the time banks won't let you go back in time to look at statements and stuff or you'll have to like download all the statements, maybe even order them if we're going back a couple of years. So you want to be doing that in real time. So we're tracking what's coming in and then tracking what's going out, which is a huge thing. And there's so many tips I can give you on how to do this efficiently and effectively and all that stuff. But if you're just starting out and you're like, I don't even know where to begin, you want to be keeping receipts that you're spending. Even if you're not even sure if you can write it off, it's better to keep it that you have it than to not keep it and have no options later on. So keeping your receipts and then at least tracking it somewhere in an Excel spreadsheet again, start a new tab called expenses. You want to be like, what day was it? Who was it that I spent money to and how much was it? If you even have that information, then somebody at tax time can help you pay less in taxes and make sure that your business finances and that you're putting in your taxes properly. But without that information, it's guesswork that is going to add to your anxiety, potentially their anxiety. And if you know the CRA or the Revenue Canada ever came to look at your stuff, you wouldn't have any of the backups. So we want to make sure that you're keeping receipts. When in doubt, keep it. You can always throw it out later. That's my very first basic. If you do nothing else, do that. That will help you in a huge way. I like what you said about really just simplifying it as much as possible because people can get so wrapped up in the tech associated with it. It's like, okay, well now I have to go find an invoicing program and there's 30 of them out there and which one's better for my company. And I mean, there's some really great introductory ones and maybe I'll link some in the show notes like FreshBooks and stuff like that too. But like Shannon said, don't even dive into that if you're just very starting out something like an Excel spreadsheet just to start tracking because the uh, diving into the technology of it all and then those can intertwine with other systems. And I mean, you can definitely go down a huge rabbit hole of just the tech involved with bookkeeping and tax time and all that stuff. So I love what you're saying about keeping it as simple as possible, tracking everything and keeping anything until you absolutely don't need it anymore. Yeah. And I always say walk before you run. You're not signing up for an Excel spreadsheet for life. You can always start a bookkeeping software later on. But what you really need in the beginning is reliable, trusted information. And I have found in my anecdotal experience that when people jump into software and they also still don't understand how bookkeeping actually works for their business, it's actually a bigger mess than if it was just in an Excel spreadsheet because Excel is very easy. Like this came in, this went out. Very basic. Whereas with the software, if you don't understand fundamentally how the double entry accounting is working, how those things are happening behind the scenes with the algorithms there, 
because you're not fundamentally understanding how that business piece works, then you can actually print out like an income statement that doesn't actually capture what's going on in your bank accounts because it's there's been entries twice, there's transfers that look like income and expenses, like it can be a bigger mess. So walk before you run, make sure you understand how that all works together and then gradually implement a booking software if you're sick and tired of using Excel. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So I know we talked about, yeah, tracking income in, but like you mentioned too, like when people are holding onto receipts, they'll also want to track expenses that go out too. So there's some sort of myths and misnomers that I wanted to clear up once and for all here. So I know people use the term write-offs all the time. So let me know what's the difference between an expense and a write-off? What's the biggest myth people think about what a write-off is and what is the truth? Right. So they're the same thing. So (laughs) people say, oh, it's a write-off. They're just saying it's a business expense. So what does that mean? That means a business expense is anything that you've spent money on that the CRA agrees with you (laughs) that it was a necessary expense for you to run your business and earn profit. So let me just break that down for a second. So the real beef here is when is it a personal expense versus when is it a business expense? That's where the line needs to be black and white that can often get bent. And so I rent an office here in Toronto as our headquarters for New School Finance. And so I couldn't run our business without this office space. I mean, we could get into it philosophically, could I? But I would never rent this office if I didn't have a business, put it that way. But I would still pay my mortgage, whether I had a business or not. I would still eat whether I had a business or not, but I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't have certain subscriptions. There are certain things that like, I'm only paying these things because I have a business. Those are my write-offs or my expenses. So it means that they qualify as a business expense. So if my revenue, my top line, the income that I made was $500,000, I'm just making up numbers right now, and all of my business expenses added up to $400,000, and that means my profit was $100,000, okay? So that's the amount of money that I'm going to pay tax on is that $100,000. I'm not going to pay tax on the five hundred. dollars I'm going to pay it on the 100000 So as you can see, there's a huge incentive for people to have lots of write-offs or expenses because it lowers your tax bracket. Instead of paying it at the $500,000, you pay it at the $100,000. And to make it a more freelance number, I often see people who you know have like 80000 coming in on the top. They have $30,000 worth of expenses. And so they pay income tax on $50,000 worth of profit. So because there's a major incentive to write things off or to have expenses, people end up throwing in everything in the kitchen sink into their expenses because they just assume, oh, well, I'm a business owner. I can just write that off. Where these are the trickiest are meals and the home office and the car. These are the places where the line between business and personal gets blurred because you are allowed to do a certain portion, but a portion, you're not allowed to just say like, oh, I'm going to write that off. And here's where the myth or the gray area or the spectrum of sketchiness, as I like to call it, is. So. Let's take the home office for, no, actually, no, let's start with meals. So the classic myth that I hear, the urban legend or the whatever you want to call it is, well, I went out for dinner with my friend and I could just say, we talked about business. So I'm going to write this off. That is like the most popular write-off thing I've ever heard. (laughs) The other one is the home office where it's like, well, I work from home so I can write off my whole house. Neither of those things are true. (laughs) So if we're talking about meals, there is probably some room for, you know, if you had a discussion with somebody as a business meeting, it's very subjective. It has to be a business meeting, but you grabbing a burrito with your pal 
even if you're, you know, chatting about your day and it happened to be about work, isn't necessarily a business meeting because you weren't meeting with someone who you're trying to get as a supplier or as a client or as a networking or the mentor or anything like that. So you need to be able to prove to the CRA if they question it, that you were spending money on a meal specifically to earn profit, not just grabbing lunch. So there's a difference, right? So you need to be able, so usually they're looking for two people on the receipts, not just one. And like, you know, if it's at 2 a.m. from a bar, may not necessarily, like, what is the story there? Like, I know as a financial planner, that's not necessarily something during normal business hours that I would do. So you need to be really reasonable about what you're writing off with your food. And the other one with food is um, if you work from a coffee shop, that doesn't mean that your coffee is a write-off because you're not having coffee with anybody. You're not having a business meeting. You're just grabbing a coffee for yourself. So think about an employee, like they would never be able to write off their personal coffee either, right? That's not necessary for their job. And then with the home office, a portion of it. So the portion of it that you use for business versus the entire house. And so that's why there are all these myths. And then one more thing, I know I've gone on about this, but what the bigger thing is that I hear too is, I don't need a laptop, but should I buy one to lower my taxes? This is another thing that I've heard a lot of. So people want to spend money to lower their tax bill. But here's the math. Okay, so let's say that we'll take our person who's paying tax at, on $50,000 a year. So they make $80,000 a year in revenue. They've got $30,000 worth of expenses. And so the profit that they're paying money on, like income taxes on, is $50,000. Okay, so their marginal tax rate or their average tax rate is going to be in and around 24%, give or take. Let's just round to 25 just for ease of math. So let's say it's 25%. I know this is getting a little wordy, but hang out with me for a second. If you spend $1,000 on a laptop, you're going to lower your income from 50,000 to 49,000, but you're not going to change tax brackets much. It's not going to do that much. So really what's happening is what you'll save on that in taxes is only $250. So you spent a thousand, but you've only lowered your tax bill by approximately 250 bucks. Cash flow wise, you're still out $750. So if you didn't need to do that to spend that money and spend that expense, then you're just hurting your cash flow. There's no need to do that. So I always want to dispel that myth of spending money in order to lower your taxes. Only time you want to be doing that is if you actually need the laptop or you need whatever expense it was. And then it's a bonus that you get to write off a portion. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And it's a good point too, because I think that people can think about these in theory a lot and they can say, oh, well, I'll do this and they'll throw a few numbers around. But like you just did there, it just takes a minute to actually sit down and do the math. So maybe before making those decisions, and I know being one-on-one with you, Shannon, we've done that one-on-one. You're like, does this make sense? And first of all, if you know the definitions of what expenses are and what revenue is and all of that kind of stuff. So educating yourself on that being familiar with the numbers, what tax bracket you're in, knowing that information can save you, like you said, the cash flow of 750 bucks. If you can just take the couple minutes to sit down and run some more accurate numbers before making a decision like that. Yeah, exactly. And and it's impossible mathematically to ever... like Spending $1,000 is never going to lower your taxes by $1,000. It's always a portion. It's just about the tax rate. So I think that's where the big misunderstanding comes. People think that, oh, a write-off means I spend $1,000, my taxes go down by 1000 But it's never that. It's always just a portion of that. So you're still out of pocket. Yeah. I think one of the big myths is, like you said, they think they get it all back. Um, yeah, that's not true. It's mathematically impossible. Right. Good. Well, I'm glad we clear. I'm glad we cleared up. And thank you so much for using like a real life example with numbers because I think it's important and people can be apprehensive and can be scared of numbers. But just sitting down, 
and mapping it out can start to unravel things in your brain and things will start to make a lot more sense. So just out of my morbid curiosity, what is the most bizarre thing you've seen someone try to expense? Um, I like the word bizarre and questionable. Like I was like, uh, I'm not sure that what we can do this. Like what's your business case? So like I said before, everything that you put on your taxes as an expense, you have to be able to back it up that it was necessary to earn profit. So the most outrageous thing I've ever seen or like bizarre or noteworthy thing was, and this is where it gets kind of, again, gray area. Somebody is, they're like a food consultant, like a nutritionist. And they went on a vacation to Italy and they blogged while they were there and then tried to write off their hot air balloon tour over Tuscany as a business expense. And it's like, is that a business expense? Like, <laughs> Could you not have done it if you didn't have to for right. your business? <laughs> and she was like, I blogged about it. Mm. So therefore it's a business expense. And in my head, I'm like, that blog is really hard to say I earned money from this tour, like that was necessary for me to earn profit. And so that's a big question mark. Like, does your hot air balloon tour count because you blogged your away? Well, I went on the more conservative side of the spectrum of sketchiness and said, no, my advice was, I don't think that you could make the case that that blog post specifically was profit earning necessarily. And it would be very hard to convince somebody that you had to go on that hot air balloon in order to successfully run your business. But again, I think something that's really important to remind people of is that I tell everyone this too, at the end of the day, you're responsible for whatever you put on your taxes. Even if you have someone do your taxes for you, they're using the data that you've told them to use, right? So like, until the cows come home, I could be like, I don't know, like, that seems like not a thing that I'm comfortable putting through. But at the end of the day, you're able to say, no, I'm down with it, do it. And you're responsible for it. So if you fully believe that that was something that you could make a case for, then, you know, go for it. If you don't, then I would adhere to whatever advice from your tax person that you got, or fundamentally understand like how that works. Because let's say that you got audited down the road, even if you had somebody that did your taxes for you, you're still the person that has to come up with all the proof of that. The tax person doesn't, it's on your shoulders. So the importance of understanding how this stuff works and what you can and can't write off and why is all on your shoulders ultimately at the end of the day. And so that's why it can seem intimidating, but it's so empowering if you know it, because then you're able to say like, nope, I'm comfortable with that. Or like, oh, I'm going to take your advice or whatever it is that you kind of come up with. It's your risk tolerance. Yeah. Sorry, you brought up is really interesting because it did make me think that like you said, the area today, nowadays is getting a little bit grayer because if someone yeah. is, if their livelihood is, I want to say, quote unquote, an influencer. Yeah. So if this was, I mean, not necessarily the person that you were actually dealing with, but if this was an influencer and they'd made their money off of Instagram because they had millions of followers, like that might change the situation, right? Absolutely. And I think that's where we get into portions and reasonability. So again, I always defer to a portion of, so like, if you make your money that way, then it makes business sense that you did that. But like, there's also just like your meals or just like your home. There's also a personal part to this too. It's not all for business. So let's be reasonable about how much it is and like what your story is and stuff like that. And I think that that is such a case by case situation. It's really hard to give any sort of blanket advice because so many people's finances are completely different, but we are getting to that space where like, yeah, influencers are very interesting because their life is how they make money. So where does the line get drawn? I don't know. I don't know that there's an answer. That's the super tricky thing about it. Yeah. It comes down to the individual person, their circumstances and their risk tolerance. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, totally. 
And I know we talked a little bit about Revenue Canada here and there. And for any American listeners, that's the Canadian equivalent to the internal revenue services. But if someone is really stuck for expenses and stuck for advice, and if they don't have someone like you to reach out to, people I find are very scared to call the CRA or Revenue Canada, as it's called as well, too. So they're scared to call. But in my experiences, they actually are pretty good at being able to break things down for you and giving you reasonable advice. But I feel like I don't know how or where I've gotten it from, but I do feel like we've been told that it's kind of this big, bad agency that's out to get your money. In my experience, I definitely have thought that before, but in interacting with them and the phone calls I've had to have with them, they actually seem super helpful. So I just wanted to clear up and sort of get your insight on the role of Revenue Canada in a situation if you're really stuck. That's a great point. So I think most people are afraid. There's this um, sinking feeling that if you call them, they're going to track your phone number to where you are. They're going to know who you are. And then you're going to flag yourself for an audit if you have questions. So let's say that you called and you're like, hey, you know, I don't know how to do this. And they're like, oh, you have to do it this way. And you're like, oh, no, that's not the way I did it. Oh, shoot. Then all of a sudden now you're like, they're going to know that I didn't do it. So like, do you call from a payphone? Do you use a voice recorder to like muffle your voice? You don't need to do that. So keep in mind that most of the people that you're calling are working a nine to five job and they're people just like you. And their job is to answer questions about the Income Tax Act. That is their job. So if you call in and you're like, I don't know if I can write this off, you don't even have to give your social insurance number or your name to ask those questions. So they don't even know who you are necessarily because you haven't given that information. Mm -hmm. If you are in a situation where you need your personal stuff from them, then yes, you're going to have to give your name and social insurance number. But if you're just calling to ask questions about the Income Tax Act, you don't have to give any of that information. You don't have to call from a payphone. I don't even know if there are payphones really. <laughs> like a burner phone you can yeah, get? Yeah, yeah, like a burner phone. Yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> um, you don't have to give your information. So you don't have to be scared of that. Second of all, asking them is the smartest thing you can do because you get it right from the horse's mouth. What's allowed and what's not rather than your friend who maybe has an accountant who puts things through that you wouldn't be comfortable with, but you think that that's accurate because they got that information from their tax person or their parent or their friend or whoever. So going right to source is often such an empowering thing to do because you get someone to explain it to you in plain language and you don't have to worry about the interpretation of it. They're just like, here it is. So I think that that's also something that is very helpful. And you don't have to be so scared. I'd say the only time that, you know, I can understand that anxiety is if you're very behind in your taxes. Like, let's say you have like four or five years of back taxes owing and you're afraid to call because you're afraid it's going to spur an audit. Let me also tell you, they already know you're late. You calling is not going to change that. You know what I mean? There's an algorithm at this point. There's a computer that knows. So it's not like you can fly under the radar and never get noticed. It's just a ticking time bomb. So again, the longer you leave it, the worse it's going to get. And so my philosophy with contacting Revenue Canada, don't run and hide. Just call. They're super lovely. They're people just like you. And they are very much like the eye of Mordor in the sense that they already know what's up. So you're not going to alert them to something that you think that you might out yourself with. So you can call, you can ask questions. You don't have to give your information unless it's about your personal stuff. Okay. That's good to know. And I think that helps clear things up because there still seems to be this stigma about people being terrified of the CRA. So just know if you have any questions, like Shan said, they already know what they need to know and you're not going to set off some tripwire if you you call to ask them about an expense. No, if you contact them about an expense, you might already be getting a letter for installment reminders. You're already going to get a letter saying like, hey, you owe your back taxes. Like that's already coming to you whether you call or not because they know that those taxes aren't done. 
So yeah. it's not necessarily because you've caused that with a phone call or something like that. Not anymore. I think maybe back in the day, there was some truth to that, but not in the digital age where everything is run on computers and algorithms. Not today. Okay, cool. We talked a lot about taxes, but I do want to rewind a little bit back to sort of a fundamental level. The taxes that we've been talking about have been income taxes for the most part. Just to add some very base clarity, can you tell us what the difference is between income tax and sales tax as a freelancer? Yeah. And so we're speaking in a specifically Canadian context. Yes. Amazing. So it's called HST slash GST, one or the other. That's our sales tax here in Canada. So we used to have only GST plus whatever province you're in had you know PST on certain things. And then they came up with this idea of having a harmonized sales tax, which is the HST. And every province in Canada was supposed to adopt it so that we had one harmonized sales tax so that these kinds of conversations were not so difficult to have. And then only some provinces opted into that. So now we have this dual system still where some provinces are on HST, where they've combined their PST and GST. And some provinces are still GST and PST. So it, Canada is very frustrating that way as a business owner. But so these sales taxes are taxes that are in addition to your income taxes. So everything that I was talking about before, a lot of people, if there's confusion around like, oh, well, if it's a sales tax, then I don't have to, you know, it's not the same. I don't make enough money to charge it. So I don't have business taxes. You have two types of taxes due potentially at tax time. One, you always have to worry about income taxes, even as a freelancer, even though it's your business finances. So if you made $20,000 last year, in your total sales or total revenue coming in, like that's how much your invoice is added up to, 20 grand. And let's say that you had $5,000 of expenses. That still means that you're going to have to show $15,000 worth of profit on your income taxes, your personal income taxes at tax time. And you may or may not owe taxes on that. Now that seems pretty low that you likely wouldn't, but let's just say that you owed you know, a few hundred bucks on that. That's your income taxes. And that happens no matter what. The sales tax, which is GST and HST, is in addition to that. And that's where sometimes you qualify, some people don't qualify, and there's all this other stuff. So for sales tax specifically, you don't have to charge it on your services or your goods until your total sales or your total revenue adds up to $30,000 in any consecutive 12-month period. So a lot of people, until they hit that $30,000 mark, don't register and they don't charge it. And that's totally fine. But that doesn't mean you don't have to worry about your income taxes because you still have to pay tax on your income taxes. So that's, they're two separate things. Income tax is unavoidable, no matter what your income is. The sales tax, you have the option of opting in before $30,000. So that doesn't mean you have to, but it definitely can. And then over $30,000, you have to. So there's no choice after that. I think that line in the sand creates some chaos or some misunderstandings. So number one, that's the $30,000 for your business finances, not your employment. So if you're doing a side hustle right now, and you like, let's say you make 50 grand a year from a salary position at a job, and you earn $20,000 a year from your freelance stuff on top of that, you don't have to register for HST because even though you made $70,000 as your total income for the year, 50,000 of that was employment. It wasn't from business. So you're, you don't have to worry about that. Mm, okay. The other mix up sometimes is if someone has two businesses and they're like, well, my yoga practice only earned me 15 grand and my web design business only earned me 15 grand, but neither one of them went over the $30,000 mark. You're still on the hook because your total business income is still at 30. Got it. Last thing I'd say about sales tax is that it's extra money on top of your revenue. So let's just say that you invoice me for your time and you charge me $1,000, but you also charge me HST on top of that. 
I'm going to have to pay you $1,130. So you're going to cash a check, well, you know, an e-transfer for $1,130, but you only earned a thousand of that is for your time. That extra 130 bucks is 13% of HST. In addition to that thousand dollars that makes up your sales, that's not your money. It never was your money. You just got an extra 130 bucks in your bank account and you did nothing extra. You owe that money back to the government. You are an unpaid tax collector. So you need to take that 130 bucks and shove it in a bank account that is not where you spend money from and ignore it because come tax time, you're going to owe that back. I mean, there's lots of strategies we can go into here with how to write off input tax credits, but just to keep it really basic, you're going to owe a portion of that HST that you've collected back. And if you've spent it like it's your money, that's the biggest single issue I see turning people's small businesses upside down for such a long time is the HST bill. Yeah, I could totally see that because it's so tempting. That's why. Not yours. It's, it's not, not yours. yours. So, no. so put it away. It never was yours and it's due back to the government. And then if you only owe a portion of it back, you'll have the whole amount sitting there in a bank account. It's almost like creating a forced savings account for you. So remembering that for the HST, you're going to bring in money that was never yours to begin with. You're going to put the whole thing. This is also the same for GST. Whole thing into a separate savings account called like taxes. You're going to ignore it. And then for the $1,000 that you charged me, which is your sales, which has to do with your income taxes, you're going to put a percentage or a portion of that also away into that tax savings account for your personal income taxes. So those two taxes, each time you cash a check, you need to put any HST or GST that you collected aside and a portion of the sales aside too for income taxes. That is how you cover your butt at tax time. Awesome. Shannon, you've cleared up so much stuff for everyone out there. This has been a crash course in freelance finances. So thank you so much for that. I will end by saying again, thank you so much. Good luck in your labor. Also, uh, (laughs) where, where are you available online? Where can people find you? Also, if they have conflicting information that they keep finding out there, what resources do you have to help support them in that way? Yeah, absolutely. So head on over to the um, the best place is our website, newschooloffinance.com. It's kind of like the Mecca. You can book a one-on-one session with one of us here. So we specialize in freelance or finances to help you kind of wade through that on a personal customized level. There's also, we have online courses and one of our best sellers, which is like award-winning is something called Soul Prop School, which is exactly how to do all of this stuff as a sole proprietor or a freelancer. And you can do the course and it teaches you how to not get screwed at tax time, how your taxes work, what you can write off, what you can't write off, how to track your stuff so that you don't get in trouble if you're over audited, all of that juicy stuff. So it's a bestseller. It's amazing. Um, So those would be the two things that I think would support anything to do with these kinds of questions. It just depends on your learning style. If you're a DIYer or if you're like a come in and just tell me what I need to do kind of person, the website has all of our information, prices, everything like that. So there's no surprises when you come find us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. There's so much more we could dive into. I mean, we could do days of this. Uh, And I hope after everything gets settled, we'll do a part two. But this gives everyone a huge amount of information to kick off their freelance careers. And I can't thank you enough for joining us. Oh, I'm so pleased. And I would love to do a part two. And um, thanks so much for having me. And if anyone is confused about your freelance finances out there, just breathe. The long game is worth it. I think freelancing is so much fun. And don't let the money stuff scare you or intimidate you. It just takes a little bit of time. And then once it clicks, it's like riding a bike and then you're good for life. Awesome. Excellent advice. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. Good luck in your labor and delivery. And (laughs) we will definitely circle back. This won't be the last we'll hear of you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 
Thank you so much for spending your time with me. As always, I love to keep the conversation going. So head over to Twitter or Instagram at Margaret Fell. That's at M-A-R-G-R-E-F-F-E-L-L. And tag me or slide into my DMs with any questions you may have. You can also find me at my home base of margaretfell.com for all the resources. I'll see you next time.